Good morning. Our reading is from Ezra 4 this morning. Bit of a long one, so settle in with me for a minute. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that they returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esherodon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of King Cyrus of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithridath and Tibiel and the rest of their associates wrote to the Artaxerxes king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Reham, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes the king as follows. Reham, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapar deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. To Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace and it is not fitting for us to witness the king dishonor, Therefore, we send and inform the king in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from old. That was why this city was laid waste. We made known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. The king sent an answer. To Rehem, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me. And I made a decree, and search has been made, and it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, I make a decree that these men be made to cease, that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rahim and Shimshai the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. 
Then the work on the house of the God of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Laura. It almost feels like we should have a wee round of applause after every reading in Ezra. No, don't, don't, don't do a round of applause because she's, she's warned you about this one being long, but next week is Ezra 5 and 6, and you ain't seen nothing yet if you think that's a long one this morning. Um, if you don't know me, um, you'll not know something about me that I am I li- I, I, someone who likes to stay active. So I'm someone who likes to kind of uh, be playing a lot of sport, keep fit, be active. That's what my life um, has always been like. Um, and this last while, well, it's just caught up with me a bit, I have to admit, because we've got a new baby, life's busy, uh, there's just a lot going on, and I, I feel like I've kind of let myself go a wee bit. Um, I've not been running, <laughs> not been running as much as I usually do. I've not been really doing any physical activity at all. Matt Little testified to this. He's always asking me to go to the gym with him, and I just ignore him now. But I, I resolved recently to start running again, and uh, it was the first time really in, in months that I'd done anything. First few times I decided, you know, like you do when you go out on a run, you keep it a very flat one when it's been a long time. Keep it nice and short as well, so that it's just kind of, you know, easing back into it. And it felt good, I have to say. I, I felt good. I was surprised uh, with myself a little bit, actually. Then I, I decided to maybe step things up, and I went for a run with a friend uh, who I used to play rugby with at Grosvenor. Uh, he is someone who is uh, he's an experienced runner. He's, he's an athlete. He's, uh, he's very little body fat, he's just built like a, a whippet almost, and he, he just runs and runs and runs. He's run loads of marathons, and he's got ridiculous 5k time, and I thought, you know, I'll go for a run with this guy, um, and we were out in the run that was fine, chat, um, on the flat was fine, and then we, we kind of got close to Stormont Gates, and we turned in, and if you're a runner and, and you turn into Stormont Gates, you know what's ahead, you know what's going to happen, it's not good, because You've got that hill right to the top of that guy standing at the top right in front of you. And, and you know that the hills have to be run because when you go into Stormont, you have to do it. And so he suggested we do it, and, and it really, it wasn't pleasant. After about 50 meters, I was just worn out. It was like I was, I was running in the Travelator and Gladiators. I was running, but I wasn't going anywhere, I felt. And I was so embarrassed even by the, the noises I was making and the way I was just panting and puffing. And it made it worse when I looked over at him because he was just, he's like a Tesla. He was just silent. He was not at all. It was about halfway up the hill that I started to have these thoughts entering into my mind. Um, you can't do this. You can't do it. Just stop. It's not worth keeping going. I was so discouraged. I was so weary. And... I just didn't know if I was going to make it to the end. Now, this moment, it came into my mind as I read Ezra 4 this week, as I prepped for for preaching, because I was thinking about the Christian life, and the Christian life is described in the Bible as running a race, a race that's full of joy and purpose and hope. Yes, but it's a race as well that requires perseverance and endurance and grit even because there are times in the Christian life when it will feel like we've turned off the flat and we're now running up that storm and hill there'll be times following Jesus that it feels like an uphill battle 
Maybe it's, it's the opposition that we face from others in the world as, as we try to live lives that are faithful to Jesus Christ, as we live according to his word, as we share the good news about Jesus with other people. Some people just seem to love nothing more than to make our lives difficult or to discourage us or to treat us with disdain. Maybe it's the opposition that we face in ministry and serving Jesus sometimes as we labor for the gospel, joining God in the renewal of all things in this city. Maybe it just feels like our plans are often frustrated or our endeavors just fruitless. And we're worn out. We're discouraged. And we have a voice inside our head, like I did on that run, saying, just give up. Just stop. It's not worth it. What is it that keeps us going? What is it that keeps us running the race with perseverance, with purpose, and with energy, and with zeal, even when we face those hills and those mountains? Even when life following Jesus, it feels like an uphill battle. Now, if you're joining in with us today and you haven't been here in the last few weeks, we're in the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which I've said already, we're, we're kind of one work. Uh, we're going we're gonna to do them all as one work. We're going to study them now until Advent next week, until we, we kind of finish it next week, and then we'll take a break till after Christmas. Um, but in studying this, this book, in Ezra here, and particularly in this passage, I think it really helps us. It helps us to know how to answer that question of how we keep going in this race in the Christian life. If you don't know much about the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, it's the story of the return and restoration of God's people after 70 years in exile in Babylon. They've come home, back to the land that God promised to them, and they've come to rebuild the temple the place that they worship God. They've come to, to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and its walls. And really, they've come to rebuild their lives again, with God right at the center. If you've missed where we've been, I'm not going to do a, a massive kind of previously in Ezra because we don't have time, but really, where we've been, what we've seen so far is that by and large, up until this point, life for the returnees has been like kind of running on the flat. It's not been too bumpy. It's been pretty kind of easy seal, easy going at the minute. The first wave of people, about 40,000 of them, they've come back and they started to settle in the land. In Ezra 3, we see them come to do what they have always thought about doing, always planned to do. They've come back to worship God in the land. They gather in Jerusalem. They lay the foundations of the temple. They build the altars so that sacrifices could be made for sin. And they worship God together. And it is a joyful moment, an incredible time. It's important we get a sense just of how momentous this is for them. This is the stuff they've dreamed of for years. 70 years they've been. To say they are overjoyed, the wind is in their sails, but here in our story, we see the glory and excitement of Ezra 3 turn to the difficulty and the discouragement of Ezra 4. This is their first hill, their first mountain, where the running really gets tough and where the road 
turns to hardship and opposition. And the question is, how will they respond? How will they keep going? What can we learn as God's people now? As we live in this kind of now and not yet of the kingdom. We live knowing Jesus Christ, experiencing life and the joy and the purpose and the hope of that, yes. But as we run the race towards the finish line to be with him forever in glory, it's hard. It's difficult. There is opposition. We labor in a world that that doesn't like the work that we have come to do. How do we keep pressing on? Even when we feel discouraged or weary, how can we persevere? Well, this passage is going to really help us because it shows us that we can keep going even in the face of opposition and hardship, knowing that God is faithful in keeping all of his promises and that his plans and his purposes for his people will never be thwarted, never stopped. So I'm going to pray for us And then we're going to get into Ezra 4. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for how it's relevant and real for every season, for every occasion, for every time of life. Lord, I pray that today our hearts would be open to you, to hear from you. Um, Lord, that as we think of our our lives in this earth and living for you, that we would uh, take our experience, um, but see how your word applies to that and speaks into that. And how, Lord, you you draw us to yourself to show us that the strength that we need to run this race, it comes from you. We can't do this on our own. We can't do anything in the Christian life on our own. We need you, Lord. We need you even now to be able to understand what's going on here. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open our hearts and, and open our eyes and that we would see Jesus and that our affections would be stirred for him. I pray these things in his name. Amen. So, if you haven't already got, got Ezra 4 in front of you, keep it open. Um, because I've got three headings this morning to help us navigate where we're going. And the first heading I've got is the offer. Because all of this in our story starts today with an offer. Look at verse 1. You get these folks who, who come to Zerubbabel, who's, he's the kind of leader, along with Jeshua and a few of the heads of the household of Israel. He's the leader who's leading the people and rebuilding the temple. And these people come to them and they make an offer to him. They say, let us work with you. Now, it seems like a great offer on the face of it, doesn't it? Think of the potential benefits that there are in them accepting this offer of help. With the extra help, they could maybe get the temple built quicker. With the extra money and resources, the temple could be even bigger, even grander than they had originally planned. And maybe this is the perfect opportunity to build some of those good relations that maybe that that we've seen in chapter 3 that were a little bit tense when they first came to the land. Opportunity to ease those tensions as they work together in this plan. It seems like there's so much to gain from this partnership. And these people, they even appear to be fellow believers. They say that they worship the God of Israel just as the returnees do. So we might think, surely Zerubbabel... This is an offer that's too good to turn down. Look at how he replies in verse 3. You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. 
Seems a bit rude, doesn't it? Seems a bit too firm. There's no negotiations. There's no trying to cut a deal here. It's just a flat-out no from Zerubbabel. Now, why? Why does he respond like this? Well, I think it's because Zerubbabel knows exactly what these people are after. He knows what the heart of their offer really is. And that he knows that what they really want is to have a say in how God is going to be worshipped. They want to bring their own theological ideas to the, t- at the table to influence the worship that was actually going to happen in the temple when it was rebuilt. How does Zerubbabel know that? Well, it's because he's seen it all play out before. This has been the age-old problem for God's people throughout their history. It's the reason, actually, that they have been exiled from the land in the first place and faced God's judgment. It wasn't that through their history that they completely turned their back on God, that they completely rejected worship in Him even. But the problem was that they'd always allowed other people living in the land around them to influence the way they worshiped God. They added other gods to their worship. They, they took on the practices of, of other religions in the land and they watered down their own commitments to God to make room for, for idols and false gods. This is what's known as syncretism. And they thought that this syncretism was actually enhancing their worship to God, but actual fact, it made their worship to God completely. Forgotten what God of the Bible says about himself, that he is not one God to be worshipped among many gods, but that he is the one and only God, the true and living God, the only one worthy of our worship. Zerubbabel knows that the people he's talking to at the start of chapter four, that they don't believe this. He knows what their worship is like, what they're into, because he's seen it happen as well in the past. If you you want to know more on this, uh, go to 2 Kings 17. Read it, and it gives the kind of context of who these people are that are in this land in Samaria. Because it tells us what they meant when they said, we worship your God just as you do. We've been sacrificing to them ever since we entered the land. The reality is that that they're just worshiping God among all the other gods. They were making sacrifices to him, yes, but they were doing it while they were sacrificing to a multitude of other idols as well. And so Zerubbabel knows that to partner with these people in rebuilding the temple, it would be disastrous for God's people. It would only lead them down a path that they've walked many, many times before in their history of idolatry, this syncretism. And so, to protect the purity of their worship and to protect their mission as a community, he says, no, you cannot be part of the work we are doing. Because for Zerubbabel and the people in Ezra 4, the goal isn't just to rebuild the temple in, in any way. It's not just to worship God in any way. It's to rebuild the temple and worship God in his way in the way that he is commanded in his word, in the way that is pleasing and glorifying to him. Now, hopefully, you're beginning to see how this applies to us here as God's people in Belfast, as we worship him, as we serve him, and we labor 
for him here in our city, in this world. Because the building of the temple, the house of the Lord in the Old Testament, it actually directly corresponds to the building of the church in the New Testament. We, the church, are the spiritual dwelling place of God now. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter says that that we are the living stones that are being built up on Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. So what the church is built upon is the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the gospel. That's what unites us here. That's what shapes us here. That's what this church is built upon. It's on Jesus Christ, the gospel our collective confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he is our Lord and our Savior, that the only way that we can know God and experience the life that we were always intended to have when God created us is through Jesus Christ, through confessing that that he is Lord, that he is the only way to know God. And as we then, as the church, as as we labor for building up Christ's church, it's vital that we too protect the purity of the gospel. We do this in the way that we worship together. We do it in, in the way that we live our lives together in community. We do it in the way we carry out our mission together as a church. All of it is done in a way that, that preserves and protects the gospel that actually glorifies Jesus Christ, shows that we are living not for ourselves, for our own glory, but for his. And this is really important for us to remember because for churches to become more culturally relevant or to be more appealing to the masses or to be more affected by others' world around us. And none of those things are necessarily bad things. Don't get me wrong. But we can never go after any of those things if we're going to go after them in a way that compromises the gospel of Jesus Christ or is going to water down the gospel convictions that we hold as a church. As a church, what we must do is two things, really. We must hold the truth of the gospel tightly and we must hold out the truth of the gospel to the world out there. Hold tight to the truth of the gospel, but hold out the truth of the gospel as well. That's how we be a gospel-shaped community of people who love each other and love our city of Belfast as we join God in the renewal of all things. And being that that gospel-shaped community, it might cost us. It might cost us now. It very may well cost us in the future. It might cost us church growth. It might cost us financially even. It might cost us being misunderstood or misinterpreted by the world around us. But we cannot compromise our faithfulness to God. Because like the returnees here, we don't want to just worship God in any way. We want to worship God in his way. In the way that he has commanded in his word. And this is one of the big reasons we believe as a church in church membership. Because we want to be a church whose doors are wide open to this world, who is incredibly welcoming to everyone. 
to anyone at all, even people who hold maybe very different values or ideas or beliefs to us. We want to be welcoming to those people. But what church membership does is it says if you really want to be fully part of this community, really part of the life of this gospel-shaped community, then we need to agree on what the gospel really is. The non-negotiables of the gospel. The things that we do hold to tightly and, and we'll never let go of as a church. There will be other things that we are more open-handed about. Other things that, that we are willing to say, you know, the church down the road might think slightly differently to us on this. Those are maybe the secondary, tertiary kind of things. But they're not the, the absolute essentials, non-negotiables of the gospel. Those things we will never let go of. And they're the things that whenever you do come into church membership, they're the, the part of the statement of faith that we get you to, to kind of agree upon, to say that you, you agree with. This is the confession of faith that you share with us. You may be thinking as I do all this, why did I start the way I did? Because I haven't talked about opposition or running uphill at all yet. But it's important to set the scene because, because what we see happens when Zerubbabel rejects the offer of help, when he, when he stands kind of at a distance from the world and others around him, when he says, we are going to protect the purity of the gospel and not compromise, rejection comes, or sorry, opposition comes. Rejection triggers opposition. And that's what we see in the bulk of our passage from verses 22 to 24. We're going to do this more kind of a sweep in the narrative. We're not going to spend real uh, in-depth time in each of the verses. But as I said um, at the start, this is kind of a, a moment where in the book of Ezra and in the book of Nehemiah, we see the kind of uphill running uh, really start for the, the people of Israel. Because it's from here that the theme of opposition is a really recurring one. And there's two things I want us to say about the opposition in Ezra 4. It's that opposition is the norm. And the opposition comes in many forms. Opposition is the norm, and it comes in many forms. Look firstly at opposition as the norm, because the writer is really deliberate in wanting us to see that the opposition God's people faced is not a one-off, isolated kind of thing. It wasn't just one peeved-off neighbor. This was opposition that started during the rebuilding of the temple and lasted for over 100 years. Now, the way he makes this point is kind of strange, and it's not immediately obvious as we read Ezra 4. Uh, it requires a bit of explaining, so stick with me here for a minute or two. Because these events in chapter 4, they don't happen chronologically. So it's not the, the kind of passing of time, as it were. If you want to read it chronologically, following the flow of time as it happened, from Ezra chapter 4 into chapter 5 and 6, we would have to read from verses 4 and 5 straight down to verse 24, okay? So it would read like this. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah, afraid to build, and they bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And then down to verse, 20, or verse 24, that kind of continues the narrative. Then the work of the house of God, that is in Jerusalem, stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Okay, so that's telling us about this time, the opposition that people faced in rebuilding the temple. But you'll have noticed in verses six and seven that we get opposition that comes during the reign of two different kings. King Ahasuerus, who's actually the king uh, during the book of Esther, 
and then King Artaxerxes, okay? Now, if you take all of the kings mentioned from King Cyrus right through to King Artaxerxes, you're talking of a time frame of about 100 years. You'll see it on the screen. Don't be overawed by this. Take a picture if you want and look at this later. I'm not going to go into it in loads of detail, but you can see Ezra 4 along the top line there. You can see the different kings you can see that they are in. And then you can see the various kind of things that happen or what, that we've had so far. We've got the re- return to the land, we've got the temple complete, and we've got the rebuilding of the city and the walls. So you can see this section from verses 6 to 23, it's almost like you put brackets around it and take it out to read it almost a little bit separately from the rest. Because it's dealing with a time 50 years after the temple has been rebuilt. Okay? So it's during the reign of Artaxerxes that God's people are actually rebuilding the city of Jerusalem and its walls. Do you see that in verse 12? Verse 12 gives us that. So this is confusion, I know. And, and you're probably wondering, why does he do this? But I think even amidst the confusion, there's a really simple reason, a simple point the author's trying to make. And it's just that he wants us to know that opposition to God's people and to God's work in the land was just a normal experience of these returnees. They constantly faced opposition. Over many, many years, time and time and time again, people were out to frustrate them and disrupt them and derail the plans that they had to carry out the Lord's work, to worship the Lord as he had intended them to. So opposition was the norm. And opposition came in many forms. You see that too. It started with discouragement in verse 4. Then it was intimidation and making them afraid. But then it starts to escalate. Verse 5, it turns to bribery in order to frustrate their purposes. And then in verses 6 and 7, and and right the way through, kind of into verse 23, they go right to the top. They go to the kings, to the government officials. They write letters of accusation, slandering the people turning whole systems and policies against them. It's clear, isn't it? The people here in Ezra 4 were willing to do whatever it took to shut down God's people, to shut down his work. They didn't trust them. They felt threatened by them. And so they put a stop to them. And do you see how this relates to us now? In our world. Isn't this so often what happens? People feel threatened by God's people and God's word. People don't trust what the Bible has to say. They think it's archaic, some of the views that the Bible proposes. And there are times whenever not just people, individuals, kind of try to stop the work that God is doing, but actually whole systems become involved. You go to places in the world now where God's people and God's work is opposed in the strongest kind of way. People are not allowed to worship even, to come like this, to gather. They have to do it in secret, behind closed doors. And you know, we sit comfortably here this morning, and we should praise God for that and thank God for that. But there may come a time, there may come a time in our history, in our lifetime, when we are unable to do this. 
when the government says that it's not possible for us to meet and gather anymore? And the question is, what, what will we do then? What will the outcome of that opposition be for us? We're going to look later at the outcome for the people here in Ezra 4, but what will it be for us? There's also the application for us to think just in, in our own lives of opposition being the norm and opposition coming in many forms. Because what we see throughout the Bible is that when men and women seek to faithfully live in God's ways, to worship him, to serve him, opposition comes. It didn't just come during the time of the rebuilding of the temple or the restoration. It, it comes right throughout the Bible. In the Psalms, how many of the Psalms are written when the, the person who's writing them feels opposed, feels kind of pressed in upon? Think about the Old Testament examples of, of Daniel, of David, the New Testament examples of, of Paul, of Peter in the early church. Didn't Paul say to, to Timothy in 2 Timothy, everyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. Do you notice how it's a godly life? It's not just saying we're a Christian and then living any kind of way we want, like idiots and people opposing us. That's not what we're talking about here. It's about living a godly life, a way that glorifies Jesus. That's what brings opposition, our faithfulness to him. Because didn't Jesus say to his disciples in John 7, the world hates me because I testify to the truth. And he goes on to say, if it's hated me, it will hate you in account of me. And if you want to follow me and be my disciples in this fallen world, you will face opposition. This is why it's so hard, so often, running the race in the Christian life. It's why it often feels like an uphill battle. Because fundamentally, we live in a world that stands in opposition to God. That's what Jesus says in John chapter 3. Here's his assessment of things. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. That's Jesus. The light has come into the darkness. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. See, sin is in the world, and sin loves the darkness but hates the light. And Satan, he opposes the light in whatever way he can. All the powers of evil that he has at his disposal, he will throw them all at Jesus and his work, trying to do whatever he can to frustrate and derail God's plans. But here's, here's the truth. Every work done for God's glory and empowered by God's Spirit, will be opposed by the enemy. Every work done for God's glory and empowered by His Spirit will be opposed by the enemy. If you're a believer who's facing opposition right now in life because you're faithfully following Jesus, you're trusting in Him, and you're feeling discouraged, or you're feeling like life is really hard, and it feels like you're trudging up that hill, gasping for breath even. You feel tempted to give up and stop. You might think that it's because you're doing something wrong. But actually, it's more likely that you're doing something right. You're choosing to live in the light and not in the darkness. And that will be hard. I spoke to a guy recently who's a Christian over in Scotland He's a very good rugby player. He joined a, a rugby club over there, a uni rugby club. And when you do, 
you're often asked to take part in these kind of initiation ceremonies um, where the new players are asked to do different things uh, to really become part of the team. Usually involves drinking a lot, telling crude jokes, explaining previous sexual exploits, a lot of stuff that's not very nice. And Andrew, being a Christian, he, he respectfully told the captain of the club in most of those things that he was being asked to do. But he'd still come along and be part of things. But after that conversation, he started to face ridicule and jibes from other teammates for his stance. It even affected his opportunities to play for the team as he sat on the bench for the first few games of this season with the captain saying he just didn't know how committed he was to the club and to his fellow teammates. It might have been tempting for Andrew to think that he was doing something wrong. It might have been tempting for him to say, you know, it's not, it's not worth it. It's not worth the bother. It's not worth the hassle. But he knows that God has placed him there for a reason, to be light in the darkness. And it may not be easy, but he's trusting that God has a plan for him being there. Here's the, the, the truth I shared with Andrew when I spoke with him that time. When he told me about the hostility and the opposition he was facing, I said this to him, our faithfulness to God might not be rewarded on earth, but we can be certain that it will in heaven. Our faithfulness to God might not be rewarded on earth, but we can be sure and certain that it will be in heaven because our Father in heaven, he sees everything that goes on in this earth. He sees when we choose to trust him, to not compromise the gospel, even when it's costly to us, even when it makes our lives on earth harder. Do you know there will come a day when Andrew's race is run and when he finishes his race, he will see Jesus, his savior, his redeemer there, welcoming him in, saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done for pressing on. Well done for staying the course, for trusting in me. Maybe you need to hear that as well. Your life right now, the opposition that maybe you're facing for following Jesus. Ezra 4 teaches that when men and women seek to faithfully live to God, to obey his word, to worship him above everything else, there will be people in this world who oppose us. People who make life difficult for us. And the question is, how will we respond? Will we take heart or will we lose heart? Look at the outcome of the opposition in Ezra chapter 4. Look at verse 24. Then the work of the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Here at the end of chapter 4, we read that the building of the temple ceases. And the work doesn't just stop for a week or two while this opposition kind of blows over and things become a bit easier again. It stops for nearly 15 years. For 15 years, no one picks up a shovel or a saw. The scrolls with the, the architect's drawings, they're just rolled up and put away. See, when opposition comes, God's people, they lose heart. In their fear, they stop the work. In their weariness, they, they give up. And as chapter four finishes, 
it, it might be a bit of an anticlimactic finish for us because we might be thinking, you know, I'm going to finish here this morning with a real kind of rally cry showing us that the people overcame the opposition and they continued the work. But that's not what happens. Because I think there's lots that goes on in this chapter here, but, but very little actually shows us how the people were turning towards God to ask for his help. See that? There's no mention of prayer. There's no mention of the leaders even coming and asking for God's wisdom in this. It's kind of just very matter of fact. It tells us all that went on and what happened in the end. And I think there's something that we can read in this. Because these people, they were allowing that opposition to, to derail kind of their mission and what God had sent them to do because they were not focusing on what God had promised to them. God promised that the temple would be rebuilt, that there would be the way for them to come back to him, to worship him again in spirit and in truth. But they had to trust him. It wasn't going to be easy. There were, there were going to be times that it was going to feel like an uphill battle. The question was, were they going to trust him and keep going? Or were they going to take their eyes off him and the promises that he has made and give up? And for a while in the book of Ezra, they do take their eyes off him and his promises and they do give up. They stop. But as we read this now, as God's people, even as we get this kind of historical content in the middle of Ezra chapter four, it tells us that despite the opposition, despite the, the fact that the temple stopped being built for a while, God's plans can never be stopped. God's plans can never be derailed because the work was finally finished. The temple was rebuilt. And the city and the walls of Jerusalem, they were rebuilt as well. We're going to see this in chapter 5. We're going to see it as we study the book of Nehemiah. There is opposition that would come, but the work would be complete because God's plans can never be stopped. God is always faithful in keeping his promises. For us this morning, this is something that we need to know. Because as we live our lives here in this earth, it will be hard. As we uh, carry out the mission that God has given us to do, it will be frustrating and difficult at times. But we need to know that God is always faithful and that God will always accomplish his plans and purposes. How do we know that? We look throughout his word. We see that everything that God said he would do, he did. Never once did he relent on his word. Never, never once did he give up on a promise. We also look at, at Jesus Christ. We look to him. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is the one who, who God sent as the fulfillment of all of his promises to his people. He is the yes and amen of God's promises. And so we look to him, to the cross of Jesus Christ, to the tomb where Jesus rose to life again. Because there we see that, that what God did then, God will do in the future as well. He will never leave his people. He will never forsake his promises and his plans for them. And his people will, will be with him as he intended for them to be. Jesus said, 
in this world you will have trouble. In this world you will have trouble. But Jesus said, take heart. Don't lose heart. Take heart. Because I have overcome the world. Jesus is in charge. He's the one with all power and authority. He's the one who's building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so we look to him. We trust in him. We obey him and we leave the results up to him. I think there's a really freeing thing in all of this as we kind of finish here. Because so much of the time, and I'm guilty of this myself, so much of the time I get frustrated and worn down in ministry and in my life as a Christian because I I put so much on me I put so much on myself and what I am doing and the work that I am doing for the Lord. But actually, the work is done by him. We can just rest in his promises. We can rest in the work that his spirit is doing in us, knowing that the work that he started in us is a work that he will complete in us. Isn't that wonderfully freeing? It takes the pressure off. And whenever we we live to serve him, and we work and labor for the gospel, it means that that's just a privilege. God doesn't need us, but God chooses to use us and to work through us. It's amazing, isn't it? The gospel is amazing. And I want to finish with the encouragement that the writer to Hebrews gives to those people. He says in Hebrews 12, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. As we come to the table this morning, that is what we remember. That Jesus Christ came, that he lived the perfect life that none of us could ever live. That even when it it seemed like the opposition had won, when he was hanging on the cross, Even when he lay in the tomb, even then God's plans could never be thwarted because he rose to life again three days later. And as we eat and we drink this meal that God in his grace has given to us, as we eat the bread and we drink the wine, we remember the Lord's death, we remember his coming again. And we live trusting in him that God will be faithful. We come and we remember that together as a community. If you're a Christian this morning, come to the table. Be reminded of God's goodness, that his steadfast love endures forever. And let's go from here with our heads lifted up, looking to Jesus, not our heads low, trudging up this hill on our own. He's there to help us. He's there to to bring us to the finish line, to glory forever with him. So let's look to him. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for the gospel for Jesus Christ, for all that you have done for us in Jesus. Lord, as we look back to those events, we you can, you are faithful in all of your ways, that there is never one good, the, the character that you have, Lord, you never uh, relented or turned back on anything that you had said. All of it came to fruition and all of it will, Lord, for us as in the now and the not yet of the kingdom, we know that all of it will come to fruition because nothing can stop your plans for your people. Lord, I pray that we'll remember that 
as we live now, when it is hard, when we, we battle sin in our own lives, when we battle against sin in this world and, and the opposition that comes to us for, for living for you. Lord, encourage us by your spirit. Help us to, to know the reality of life here, but to, to not be bogged down and, and wearied by that, but actually to have our heads lifted up looking to you, Jesus, seeing that you're in charge, that you're seated in the throne, and that you will come back one day to take us to be with you in glory. Lord, we thank you for the gospel, for the work that you have done in our lives. And I pray, Lord, that you continue to renew us and restore us as a community as we press on uh, in the work that you've given us to do here in Belfast. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.